The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Dana Stevens, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest, the Great Work Begins edition. It's Wednesday, March 28th, 2018, and on today's show, Angels in America officially returned to Broadway this week to rave reviews. How does Tony Kushner's seven-and-a-half-hour masterpiece resonate with 2018? Then we'll talk about The World Only Spins Forward, the oral history of Angels in America by Isaac Butler and Dan Coyce. We'll have them on to discuss their book and the challenges and responsibilities of writing a book about such a major piece of theater. And finally, we'll chat about Love, Simon, the new film from director Greg Berlanti about a closeted gay teen and the anonymous classmate he falls for online. Stephen Metcalf and Julia Turner are both off this week chasing their muses, but I am joined by two GabFest all-stars and all-timers, Slate's beloved Dan Coyce from Washington. Hello, Dan. Hello. And here in the studio with me in New York, Isaac Butler. Hello, Dana. Hey, so glad to have both of you guys. Okay, so you are, of course, co-authors of The World Only Spins Forward, The Ascent of Angels in America, which we'll be getting to in our second segment, but inevitably we'll be bringing into our first segment about the play as well. So we have some clips to listen to from this this new production, this London to New York production. But before we get there, just for those of you who have either no experience with Angels in America or it was long ago, or maybe you only saw the Mike Nichols directed version for HBO, which was what year, Isaac? Uh, 2003. Right. And the original stage play, of course, was 1993, one decade before that. So we're going to just maybe briefly go over what this massive two-part play is. Really, it's it's two separate plays. Uh, so Angels in America is a play in two parts. It runs roughly seven and a half hours, not including various intermissions. It first premiered in 1993 on Broadway. So these two plays, both written by Tony Kushner, are called Millennium Approaches and Perestroika, the first and the second part. They've been revived first for a run in London last year and now for the Broadway stage with the same director, Marianne Elliott. And maybe we'll just break down quickly here the the major characters in the play. Um, So Andrew Garfield, you could call the protagonist of the play, plays Pryor. Who is is Pryor, Isaac, tell us. So uh, Pryor Walter is a 30-year-old, very fabulous uh, gay man living in New York City in the mid-80s who has recently been diagnosed as as having AIDS and Carposi sarcoma, who um, reveals this to his uh, partner of four years, Louis Ironson, played by James McArdle. and uh, much of the action of the play revolves around Lewis's decision to leave Pryor because he can't handle the, the watching Pryor die from this disease. And probably the biggest name starring in this London to Broadway production is Nathan Lane as, as Roy Cohn, the notorious McCarthyite lawyer and eventually mentor of our current president. Um, this unusual role, to some degree, for Nathan Lane to take on as somebody you think of as a, as a light comedian. Um, tell me about Roy Cohn. <laughs> sure. So Roy Cohn, uh, who um, someone in our book describes as the worst person who ever lived, who never actually murdered anyone, it was uh, he got his start uh, as part of the legal team prosecuting Ethel Rosenberg and then went on to be Joe McCarthy's uh, attorney during the HUAC uh, hearings and then went into private practice where he became a Republican Party fixer and a lawyer to mafia dons and uh, our current president. And um, he was, during this entire time, a closeted gay man who was forced from the closet when it was discovered that he was dying of AIDS. Um, uh, and um, the play takes that real-life character and creates this kind of larger than life fictionalization of him and charts him from sort of his his point of feeling the most secure in his power to getting the diagnosis through his eventual decline and death. 
Right. And so as part of the Roy Cohn story, we should also talk about Joe, who's the character in his story, who kind of links that story up with the, the couple, Lewis and Pryor, that we've already talked about. So, Dan, you take Joe. Tell us about Joe. So um, Joe and Harper are the other sort of primary couple in the play. Um, they are Mormons, a uh, young Mormon couple who recently moved from Utah to New York. Joe is a clerk in the courthouse, and he's also a uh, a Roy boy, which is to say he ha has been taken under the wing of Roy Cohn, who's taken an interest in his career and wants to help him advance. Um, Joe's also, uh, also a gay man who is struggling with his identity and struggling to come to terms with it. Harper, his wife, um, who's played by Jenny Scoff in this production, uh, is, uh, is, as a result, as you might expect, deeply unhappy um, and uh, as we first meet her in the beginning of the play, she is uh, popping Valiums, hallucinating, and trying to figure out what secret her husband in this production, played by Lee Pace, is keeping from her. Um, so everybody who knows about Angels in America knows about the angel, the uh, sort of iconic image of this winged creature descending over a hospital bed. The actress who plays the angel, who's Amanda Lawrence in this production, also plays several other parts. What all does she do? She plays uh, a, a bunch of roles. She plays one of the nurses whose name is Emily. She plays a homeless woman who's the eating soup. Okay, the other two big characters we need to know about before we listen to our clip are Belize. Sure, yeah. So Belize is uh, one of Pryor's best friends. He is an ex or maybe XX drag queen who works as a nurse in the AIDS ward and he is of St. Vincent's and he is a you know gay black uh, man incredibly fabulous prior is fabulous Belize is fabulousness incarnate uh, but he also as a result becomes Roy Cohn's nurse as well and one of the other connections and, and sort of relationships that it's charting is this relationship between these two polar opposites this sort of creature of the left and this monster of the right uh, one of whom has to wind up taking care of the other and last but not least a very important character and this actress always plays several very important roles is uh, is Hannah Pitt, the mother of Joe Pitt, who at least at the beginning of the play lives in Utah uh, and disapproves of her son's life in the big city, and and that that actress Susan Brown in this production also plays a bunch of characters, including Ethel Rosenberg herself, who appears as a ghost, a vengeful ghost at the at the bedside of Roy Cohn. So as you can see from how long it took for us just to set out these characters and their relationships, this is really a vast tapestry of a play, right? I mean, there's a lot there's a lot of moving parts going on. There's a lot of relationships that crisscross in different directions. Let's listen to a clip from the trailer for the London National Theater version so you can get a little sense of how this all sounds on stage. I do sort of wish that you weren't responsible for everything bad and evil in the world. <laughs> you give me way too much credit. Yeah, I know what time it is. I couldn't sleep. I'm busy dying. Americans have no use for sick. The Lord moves in mysterious ways. Oh, indeed. Indeed she do. Everyone will think they're crazy now, not just me. Everyone will see things. The world only spins forward. The time has come. The great work begins. It was so nice of him to mention the title of our book. It really was. <laughs> and that's Mandy Lawrence uh, doing the voiceover of that as well, the, the angel. All right. Well, that's that trailer gives you a desire to see the play. I'm not sure it gives you a sense of what it is like to see the play. For one thing, because it kind of contains the famous catchphrases in there, including the title of your book, The World Only Spins Forward, it makes it sound as if it's a play of grand pronouncements and grand moments, which it can be, and it is not afraid to be at, at many moments. But 
it is not primarily experienced in that way by the viewer. And that's something I think that only comes across from actually watching it, or I guess maybe reading the play as well. But it's extremely funny, right? And funny in a way that is woven into every scene, surprisingly, and including the the most sort of tragic and awful scenes, almost always have something absurd or humorous or grotesque in them that, that takes you out of side of the tragedy. I'd really like to know, Dana, what the experience was like for you. You know, we, Isaac and I have both seen this play a bunch of times in a bunch of different incarnations. And I think this was, was this your first time seeing both parts in one day in the kind of marathon format? Oh, yeah. I mean, this was my first time seeing it on stage. I mean, my experience of it back when it came out in 93 was I lived in California. I was a broke graduate student. There was not any conceivable way that I was ever going to see that production of it. And uh, and so, yeah, my first experience of ever seeing it was the HBO series, which now looking back, although it's it's an extremely accomplished version, it, it felt like it at the time, too, is a filmed play is very much a filmed play that doesn't transmit that experience of of immersion that you get from sitting in a theater for seven and a half hours. I'm extremely glad I was I was lucky to get comp tickets on a day where I actually did see it marathon style, because, of course, you could see you know, a matinee of Millennium Approaches, and then two days later, go back and see Perestroika. But something about that feeling of, you know, the comprehensiveness of marathoning it with the performers that you've been through something while they are going through it made it so much more powerful. I was really, really happy to have, have seen it all in one day like that. Yeah, the, as my experience, too, is is that when you sit in that theater uh, and sort of be, get overwhelmed by this thing, then take a break, then return uh, you know, all not only the actors up on stage, but all the people around you are sort of like your war buddies who you mm-hmm. are going through this incredible experience with, and you develop this kind of bond with them as well. And the play is such a creature of the theater. Um, you know, I think you're right that the movie feels like a filmed play, and it often in ways that really lessen its power because the play is so much about the kind of transformation that can occur uh, inside that space with just a little application of, you know, shoe polish and spit and pluck uh, and, you know, millions of dollars worth of expensive visual effects. But in general, it's a testament to the kind of transformative magic that the theater can accomplish. And so seeing it in that way is just a, a truly moving experience, I find. It, it's it's jamming in so much. There are moments where it does overreach, but the overreaching becomes part of the beauty. And that was something I wanted to talk to you both about, too, because there's a great sidebar in your book where a bunch of uh, people who have been in the play, directed the play over the years, I think Kushner might be included, too, all talk about this ongoing question about whether Millennium, the first half Millennium Approaches, is, is more perfect than Perestroika, the five-act kind of unwieldy craziness that is the second half. And I think there's an argument to be made both ways, but there's nothing that I would want to change about the play because that imbalance and the strangeness of the second half that is never quite explicable is so much of the power of what stays with you. I feel like if it had somehow been this this compact perfection that you walked out of, it wouldn't have stayed with me and haunted me in the days since the way it has. I completely agree. A lot of that comes from the circumstances under which that play was written. The first part w- was written very early um, and emerged essentially perfect. Like it has always been, as many people told us, a kind of perfect uh, entertainment engine. Uh, it's, you know, Kimberly Flynn, Tony's great friend of the 1980s told us it's like an arrow you pull back and it has so much energy and momentum that you just fire it and it hits its target every time. Even the most incompetent high school theater department can put on part one and it usually turns out pretty good. 
Whereas part two was written under the pressure of the success of part one. And it was written in a way to try and not only resolve all the conflicts and cliffhangers of part one, but to solve the immense uh, kind of epistemological problem created by part one, which is how do you write the conclusion to a thing that is in and of itself about how no things have conclusions and about how progress can never end and about how uh, a resolved ending uh, is not what in fact all of us are in this game of life for. And so it's fun watching that play wrestle with all those subjects. And it also can be frustrating for many audience members, I think, and, and many is the theater company in the last 25 years in the United States that's ambitiously put on part one um, and then shied away from putting on part two. So there are many audience members who've seen part one and for whatever reason have never actually seen the resolution to Angels in America, for whom the experience of seeing Angels in America ends with the angel crashing through the ceiling and being like, the great work begins, and then the blackout, and that's it. <laughs> yeah, the rest of your life is just trying to figure out what the hell was she talking about? Yeah, it's the who right. shot JR of the American theater. <laughs> right, right. Uh, um, I will say this production makes the best case I've ever seen, probably for the second play. The second play, you know, and the way it does it is that it treats the experience as two parts of one cohesive aesthetic experience. Whereas often, particularly early on when they were written separately and the second one wasn't written yet, they're really sort of treated as two different plays that involve the same characters. And um, uh, so there is a way in which there's stuff that happens in Millennium Approaches in the way it's staged, that, that its payoff doesn't happen until Perestroika, like on a directing level as well. And that that sort of knits them together. And so what it feels like, particularly when you see it in the marathon, is this kind of like furious perpetual motion machine that might explode at any moment, but instead just somehow manages to keep going and keep on that track and barrel forward to the end. There is, though, I think, a, 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 an aesthetic presentation. There's a this presentational style that's different in the two plays, e even in this production, which seemed to me, I think, that what Marion Elliott was trying to go for in staging it in this way was to uh, was to re reach further into that space that Harper and Pryor go to, the fantasy, unreal space, right? I mean, there's a lot more kind of visitation of angels and appearances of burning books and strange, inexplicable miracles that happen in the second play. And uh, and she creates a staging. I don't know whether it's because of there are fewer kind of moving pieces on stage and it's a little more bare bones. The angel is staged in this fantastic, interesting way with puppets holding her wings rather than, you know, having attached costume wings, as I, I assume most angels throughout the history of the presentation have been. And so there's something a little rickety about the second part in the way that she presents it, which I think goes well with the, with the structure. Yeah, I think absolutely. There's a way in which the complexity and chaos of the second half is embraced by this production instead of trying to be solved that I think is really powerful. Right. The angel in many productions is often magnificent, and she's described in the script as magnificent. And one of the great uh, revelations of this production to me is that the angel is not magnificent. She is, she is, as you say, rickety and falling apart in the way that the heaven of this play and, in fact, the earth of this play are as well. And that, to me, was a, a really kind of amazing choice. 
All right. Well, to, to the extent that it means anything to wrap up this segment and move on to the next segment, which is also about angels in America, I think we should do that and get to your actual book and talk a little bit about what it means to assemble an oral history of, of a work like this. Uh, I just finished Great. your so book. So here's the part in our conversation where the angels come through the ceiling and now right. we're going to black out. Yeah. Ben Frisch comes jumping through the, the glass that separates us from the booth. <laughs> <laughs> and the great work of talking about your great work begins. Yeah. All right, before we move on with the show, let's do this week's business. Isaac, what have we got? We uh, want to tell you about another Slate show that is coming back, and that's our Americans podcast. Go behind the scenes of the FX series about a pair of Russian spies passing themselves off as D.C.-based travel agents in the 1980s. The morning after every episode of its final season, June Thomas will present interviews with the show's actors, writers, directors, costume designers, and stunt coordinators. They'll explain how the show got made and what it felt like to create it. So tune in every Thursday morning starting March 29th. Can I just jump in to banter and say I love this podcast. Yeah. It's one of my favorite Slate podcasts. And I don't often listen to sort of TV recap podcasts or read TV recaps. I kind of feel like if I watch the show, I make my own conclusions about it. But that's not what this podcast is. It's not commentary or criticism or recapping. It really is June just wandering around Gowanus, digging into whatever's going on with the Americans that week. And because she's been doing it for so many seasons, the whole cast and crew and creators are very familiar with June and love June, as everyone does who spends time with her. And so there's just a lot of funny moments and, you know, talking to the the set designer or the, I don't know, line producer. She just, she'll talk to anybody who works on behind the scenes of the Americans. So in addition to being a great dig deeper into a really fantastic show, it's it's sort of a, just one of those featurettes about how something gets made, which I always love. Uh, and in Slate Plus today, we're talking about what piece of art or culture we'd most like to read in oral history of. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program and is a great way to support us. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other great benefits. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. And I feel like I should say, because I know Dan brought this up uh, 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 elsewhere that, you know, without Slate Plus, I'm not sure our Angels in America uh, cover story for Slate would have ever happened. Happily, that cover story did happen, and we're going to get to it in our next segment about Angels in America, the book. The World Only Spins Forward, The Ascent of Angels in America, is the oral history of the creation and production of this play over the last 25 years, and it's written by our guest hosts today, Isaac Butler and Daniel Coyce. I just finished your great work this morning. As I was drinking my morning coffee, I was reading your acknowledgments, which come at the end of the book, and I'm in them. I was so incredibly delighted and flattered. Yay. I have no idea why I'm in there. I contributed nothing to this book, but thanks. Steve and Julia are you in talked about well. You talked about the original Slate piece with us on the Gap Fest. So That's you, right. This you did, did this, thanks for that. This did spin out of a Slate piece that you did in 2016, correct? Which you had planned to just be a, a freestanding little tribute to the play. Well, we initially, I think, wanted to do like a freestanding thing, but the story very quickly, much like the play got away from Tony, you know, when Tony Kushner was originally writing this play, it was going to be a play for five men that was going to be under two hours long and, and be features, a musical, and be a musical, right? So in much the same way that the play kind of, you know, grew and grew and grew and got out of control, the same thing happened with the story of the play because the story of the play is huge. All right. So talk to me how about how you cast your net wide when you go in and sign a contract and tell somebody that you're going to write an oral history of Angels in America and you've got 25 years of producing the play to go back and look into. First of all, how did you how did you cast your net and gather your sources? 
Well, first, we decided that we needed to go further back than 25 years. One of the most important things for us about telling the story in a longer version was to be able to really make the book not only history of the play, but a kind of pocket history of the eras from which the play was born, which is to say uh, the the post-Stonewall revolution of the 1970s, the AIDS epidemic of the 1980s, the Reagan uh, era of right-wing politics of the 1980s and early 1990s, like all of those uh, cultural shifts, huge cultural shifts and dramatic moments in American history contributed to the play. And we knew that we wanted to tell those stories as well. So the first step was to sort of think back even further and think beyond the 1993 Broadway premiere, beyond the 1991 Eureka Theater premiere in San Francisco, beyond Tony, thinking of the idea for the play in the mid-80s to the sort of foundations upon which this play was built. And then after that, it was a matter of just literally sending out 10 trillion emails like to everyone <laughs> we could think of who had something to say about those topics, about the play, and then casting forwards about the play's impact, you know, which meant for my part, for example, one of the most pleasurable aspects of doing this project was through endless Googling and LexisNexis searching, tracking down every single regional theater and small theater and college theater production of Angels in America that's happened over the last 30 years uh, and finding every actor who I could find an email address for and asking them if they want to talk about playing the part that they played because it allowed us, it gave us the opportunity to sort of create not only the history of the play and the times it sprang from, but the sort of histories of each of these eight characters, the eight characters we described at the beginning of the show because we had the opportunity to talk to all these actors who played all these characters. Yeah, that's something about the organization of the book that that I really like is that every character gets their own chapter. I mean, that's not the only thing that chapters are centered around, but you know, you start to realize reading your way through the book, oh, okay, you know, they've talked about Pryor, so we're going to get a chapter about Joe and we're going to get a chapter about Lewis. And you get to hear reflections from, as you say, all these actors who have played them and directors who have directed them. And as you can imagine, in a seven and a half hour play, these characters have a real vibrancy and immediate immediacy by the end of the play. I mean, you get to see them in so many different states and they're all constantly changing. And so there's something really generous about dedicating that much space to each character. Well, thank you. I mean, one of the things that those interludes allow us to do as well, so each character gets their interlude and then the other chapters are more, you know, telling an overarching narrative, you know, about the history of the play and its era. And so one of the other things those interludes let us do is in a really fun, I think, way, because it's, you know, people arguing about how to interpret the character and telling stories about it. It allows us to talk about the themes and politics of the play, um, through the lens of each of these uh, characters, which I and that gives it a kind of fun propulsion, I think, because it's not just us lecturing you about the politics. Do you know what I mean? It's it's how these the politics and the themes matter to these individual characters and the people who play them. So it has a kind of personal stakes that it wouldn't otherwise have. And of course, these characters have incredibly strong opinions about the politics of the play. Much of the play is made up of their political debates, the dialectics between them, and so allowing the actors to weigh in on those and argue with each other in a way is we thought also like pretty faithful to the spirit of the play itself. Yeah, it's very it's it's something really impressive about this play is that it's extremely talky. Well, particularly the character Lewis, who is is based on Tony Kushner's way of kind of his logoreic, you know, production of language. 
Um, and yet a lot of times these ideas and themes that are being articulated, the character who's articulating is full of shit, yes. right? And is either defending <laughs> defending against something or lying about something, right? So you never get the sense that you're being finger wagged or lectured. Yeah, the characters in Angels in America express themselves through politics. They are not just talking about politics. Politics is the language they use to navigate their way through the world. And um, that is also true of lots of people who have worked on Angels in America, as we discovered over the course of doing the book. Did you find in general that people were very eager to talk about? You didn't get a lot of resistance or people who said, I have nothing to say or I don't remember? There are people who turned us down for interviews, but anyone who wanted to do, there was no one for whom uh, they were just like, oh yeah, meh, I did Angels in America once. Everyone involved in it, uh, doing the show had a huge, huge, huge impact on them. There was no one for whom doing Angels in America was a casual experience. So the people who talked to us were very eager. They had lots of stories. They would tell us deeply personal things about themselves. One person let us use their diary, you know, so it's like that that was sort of the energy I found in the interviews that we did. Would you always do one on one? Because you managed to edit these things sometimes in such a way that it sounds like some people are in the same room together. Did you ever get people together who had appeared in a certain production together and and interrogate them as a group? Only once. Only one of those interviews was with multiple people. And it was with uh, three actors in this crazy um, production in Amsterdam. Uh, by a director named Ivo Van Hoeven. Three of those actors sat with me in a room uh, in their headquarters in Amsterdam. But other than that, these were all done individually, either in person or on the phone or on Skype or over email, but they were they were all done individually. And then the goal of the editing project was to make it feel as though you were in the midst of this big cocktail party where everyone had had like a drink and a half and was cornering you to tell you their story of angels in America, but then getting interrupted by other people who had different memories and want to fight with them about it. Yeah. Well, kudos to your editor and to whatever editing you guys did, because in many, many scenes, it feels as if people are bouncing off each other to the extent that you'll put, you know, people will say almost identical phrases sometimes about how it felt to play a character. And you're aware that they might have played that character 20 years apart from each other. Yeah, totally. I mean, we were influenced by, you know, documentary films that that are very deft in how they edit testimony together. And also, you know, there's this sort of vogue in theater called verbatim theater where you're inter relating interviews um, uh, and actually one of the authors of one of the landmark works of that of that theater called Execution of Justice and her name's Emily Mann is is, a, is in the book and you know th- those sort of theatrical rhythms of voices coming together um, were very important models for us when we were kind of putting all this together Dan has a theater background I have a theater background and so you know we wanted it to feel like this sort of very exciting play almost as you're reading it Something I noticed, too, is that you are not just like the play itself. You are not particularly reverent about the text. Like you, your your book of life is uh, occasionally gets some burns, <laughs> sick, yeah. sick burns. One of which I can think of is that those those Dutch um, producers of the play, that play that was put on in Amsterdam, didn't do the last scene. Right. They cut the last scene because they said, oh, it's so American. They found that the, the very, very ending scene, which I guess I won't give away if you haven't seen the play, but it involves you know, revisiting, getting to revisit you know, sort of our, our beloved characters that we spent so much time with. And it ends on this kind of benediction where Pryor turns to us, to the audience and sends us out into into the streets to, and saying the great work begins. And uh, and that was the scene that they cut. I mean, personally, maybe it's very American of me, but I wouldn't have wanted the play without that scene because there's this wonderful sense. And I think this is something Tony Kushner says in your book, that it's almost like Puck wishing you goodbye at the end of Midsummer Night's Dream, that there's this sense that you're you're being blessed by the characters. Right. Well, that scene got cut by that production and they were very forthright about their feeling that it just didn't work. And, 
we we were pretty eager, I think, to include a lot of the conflict that sprang up over the course of the creation of this play because it's a play about conflict, right? And the there were very strong personalities throughout the throughout the development of Angels in America, often at loggerheads about what the future of this play was and what the job it ought to be doing. And to like not tell those stories of people getting fired and people having fights and people being frustrated with each other uh, would have been, I mean, it would have been misrepresentational, but it also would have been not very much fun. Like as a, as a backstage drama, there's a lot of juicy shit in this that we wanted to make sure people didn't miss out on. And there's even some bubble bursting from within the theater world, right? Like I think it's Joanne Acolytus, the former, isn't she the former director of the public theater? Yes. Who who doesn't seem to be that crazy about the play and says, I read your piece in Slate. I thought it was a bit hyperbolic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Overly <laughs> reverential. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, I remember when that happened in the interview and I was actually sort of like secretly fist pumping. I was just really <laughs> glad that there was someone who we were, that was pushing back a bit on the consensus about the play and about our piece on the play. I mean, Dan and I, I don't want to speak for Dan, but, you know, we're both very confident that this is a great work of art, that Angels in America is a great and important work of art. And so we don't mind hearing people tell us that they disagree. That disagreement is interesting and getting that disagreement into the book is interesting. Uh, Another interesting thing was how many people we found who we tracked down because we had seen something negative about the play they wrote. And when we got in touch on them, they were like, actually, you know, over time my feelings about it have changed and I really love the play now. Um, you know, that was another interesting thing that happens that you have a long time to sit with a work, your feelings about it shift. In the 25 years since, hasn't he kept on cutting and changing and moving things around? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. In the book, Only he in the it, second play. Yeah. Well, he doesn't change my, the first play. Yeah. In the book, he calls it the most expensive writer's block in history or something like that. Um, yeah. Uh, he has continued to tinker with Perestroika. And one of the wonderful things about that is, of course, you know, Perestroika is a play about constant change and how we'll never be finished and the play will never be finished. Uh, And indeed, bringing it back to Broadway, he rewrote stuff for the national production when it was in London last year. And as it's come back to Broadway, he's done rewrites on it uh, as well. You know, he opened it up and has been tinkering again. Well, it seems like he's almost like Samuel Beckett in the degree of control, not control, but but involvement that he wants to have. I mean, the difference from Beckett, of course, is that Beckett had very rigid rules about exactly how his plays could be produced and you couldn't do this and you couldn't do that. And Tony doesn't seem to have those kind of limitations, but he is very hands on as a writer, even having written the play 25 years ago. Well, he has those rules in his head. He says to us, you know, I know a way that every single scene in the play can work because I've seen it work that way before. And the struggle that he has is in keeping himself from from dropping those sort of Beckettian strictures down on directors and actors in a play. And even though he's itching to tell actors who are slowly working their way through their actorly process, like, oh, if you just do it this way, it'll work. Um, and so he fights against that impulse in himself all the time. And sometimes he succeeds and sometimes he fails. And, you know, one of the delightful uh, discoveries for me, what we made doing this book, were the number of times that Tony would say something like, this time I'm not giving any notes. This time I'm done giving notes on Angels in America. And then asking the actors in that production he was talking about who would say, oh, yes, he gave me, you know, hours of notes because he can't stop himself. He he cannot stop. He knows the importance that this play has in the canon and in his career. Um, and he, and he, he knows the way he wants it. He, the, he knows what it can do. 
And so he struggles still with that sort of intermediary period when it is only getting to the place where it can be. Yeah, you have an absolutely hilarious sidebar. And if people read this book, I really recommend that they read every one of the gray sidebars that pop up throughout. But you have one called Tony Has Notes, I believe. There's only the story of him sitting in rehearsals taking notes. And a couple of different actors confirmed from different points of view that there was one production, I'm not going to remember which one it was, where he filled an entire yellow legal pad with notes over the course of the play. Yeah, that's the that. Well, there's more than one production where that's happened. But there's a there's a a, two productions where that becomes a major plot point in the book. One was the plays debut in London in the early 90s at the National and a production directed by Declan Donnellan. And then the other one was when he when they were doing the touring production of it, that he came to run throughs. And, you know, the thing is, is that he's taking notes so furiously, he doesn't ever appear to actually look up and see what's going on in rehearsal because he's just writing and writing and writing and writing and writing um, uh, because he has that level of, of specificity and that level of a specific understanding of, of every moment. But what that creates is a, you know, sort of unique director-playwright relationship. That is not the way the director-playwright relationship normally works. But if you work with Tony Kushner, particularly on a production of Angels in America, that is how it works. All right. And so for our final, this is our benediction, our our, our prior Walter-style benediction for listeners. Let's say you're listening to this and you just don't know Angels in America from a hole in the ground, but you're now interested in it. What should that person do first? Should they read your book? Should they watch the HBO series first? Should they read the play? They should buy our book first. (laughs) (laughs) Several copies. They shouldn't read it until after they have experienced the play in some way, whether through the HBO film, um, which is which you can get on Amazon Prime or I believe HBO Go if you have it. Um, It's also out on DVD um, and and orderable um, or seeing a production, you know, it's it's not it, you don't only have to come see this play on Broadway. They're doing it uh, at Berkeley Rep in San Francisco later this spring. A production just closed in Louisville. Small theaters all over the country do this play all the time. Um, but, yeah, I would say like experiencing the play in some way, either seeing it or reading it um, is such a joy that I, w- I would urge everyone to do it whenever they have the chance to do it. Um, and, you know, we. We love this Broadway production. We have some problems with the Mike Nichols HBO movie, but you know, one its problem is not that it's not a faithful representation of a lot of what makes the play really beautiful and great. It really is. It, it, I mean, it's probably maybe that it's too faithful in the end. Um, but as a way of sort of getting of grokking what Angels in America is, that Mike Nichols HBO production, you know, with Al Pacino and Meryl Streep and Emma Thompson is a great is a great starting point. I am also going to go to bat for reading the play. I think um, often plays don't read that well because, you know, they're meant to be read out loud, so they don't read that well on the page. But Angels in America is deeply pleasurable to read. As a reading experience, you can just sort of hear the voices of these characters. The stage directions are very delightful and very charming. Um, You know, you get a real sense of Tony Kushner's personality through his notes that are in the book. Um, Just as a reading experience, the play is also quite wonderful. And very, very, very funny. I think that's what I'm going to do next, actually. What I would like to do is go back and see the entire play again. But given that I don't think they're going to comp me twice, I'm going to read the play next. All right. Well, thank you so much, you guys, for writing this book and for coming in here to talk about it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And to any of you out there who have seen the play, have been in the play, have thoughts about the play or questions, please go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest, and, uh, and let's chat about it.
Love, Simon is the new film from director Greg Berlanti about a closeted gay teen and the anonymous romance he sparks online. It's based on the novel Simon vs. the Homo Sapiens Agenda by Becky Albertalli, and it stars Nick Robinson as Simon. The movie has garnered mixed reviews. We are joined by Slate's science intern, Alex Barish, to talk about it. Welcome to the show, Alex. Hey, thank you. Uh, in part, we're having you on, I should say, because you are closer to the demographic that this movie <laughs> is aimed at than any of the other conversants, these middle-aged straight people over here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, so given that you are both a, closer to the generation, not a teenager, but in your early 20s, right, yep. and also a gay person, we thought we would get your point of view on a movie that tries to do a lot of things, succeeds at some of them, and is, to me, is, is a great curiosity to talk about, although I have to admit I did not love Love, Simon. <laughs> So before we get started, let's listen to a clip from the movie. How long have you known? I was around... 13? Four years. Four years of eating dinner together, four years of going to movies together. I'm sorry. I shouldn't no. have missed it. Hey, no, Ted. No, all those stupid jokes. I know you didn't mean them. I just want you to know that I love you. I wouldn't change anything about you. Hey, stop crying. I'm trying. I'm trying. Oh, God. Come here. All right, so those moist voices belonged to Nick Robinson as Simon and Josh Duhamel as his father. And that scene takes place, I guess, a few days or a couple of weeks after he's come out to his parents. And his father's been a little silent about it, so he hasn't known how he felt, and that's the moment that they... They bond. I mean, as as much as I'm cackling at that in the studio right now, I think I did get a little bit misty in the theater. It's one of the m- several moments in the movie where they're like kicking you right in the feels <laughs> as hard as they possibly can. But it is effective at doing that. I, I, I certainly moistened up multiple times over the course of seeing it. I cried like a fucking baby. What is wrong with you? <laughs> yeah. Jesus Christ. All right. So wait a minute. We've got to do my classic spoiler special thing and go around and just get everyone's basic reaction. So I know whether I'm questioning a a lover, a hater or something in between. Uh, Okay, Isaac, you start. I really liked it. I was surprised at how much I liked it. Um, I, you know, I was very moved by it. The whole audience, it was like a half full theater because I saw it last night. I saw it on Monday night at like 8 p.m. But everyone burst into applause at the, at, you know, sort of the very ending climax of the movie. And um, yeah, no, I, I thought the and I thought the performances, particularly from all of the adults in the film, were um, quite good. Uh, I have some reservations about it, which I'm looking forward to getting to uh, uh, later. But I, I liked it and I was happy I saw it. And what about you, Alex? Yeah, I mean, I mostly found it delightful. I also had some reservations, but I thought that it was really well executed on the whole. And just seeing a film like this in a theater full of teenagers and older people who are just applauding this gay love story felt really special to me. So, yeah, I'm I'm pretty strongly in favor of Love, Simon overall, although yeah. there are things that I'd like to unpack about it. Yeah, yeah. What about you, Dan? Obviously, you wept more than any of us, so maybe you're the most pro. <laughs> Uh, I thought it was totally adorable. My kids also thought it was totally adorable. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I love this movie. I, I, I think what I loved most about it was, uh, how every teenager in the theater I saw it in and, and my own kids felt like, oh, there's no reason that this movie is even exceptional in any way. 
Right. I do think that if you can see it while it's still in the theater, that is actually the right way to see it because it has a relationship with its audience that uh, that is quite, I think, special to witness. In in the sense that? In the sense that, you know, people applaud at the gay kiss at the end. People are crying. People are, you know, they're into it. You know, the last movie I saw that had that where I had that kind of experience was Magic Mike, where women would like hoot at the screen during the dances, <laughs> which was like a really it's just a really powerful thing to watch, like a movie that that has a similar effect on its audience to live theater, even though everyone sitting in that audience knows the people on that screen can't hear them. But can I be a mild spoiler hater sure. here? I mean, the last kiss at the end. We can talk about this because, of course, it's a it's a rom-com, right? Of course, there's going to be a final kiss at the end. That moment to me, was it, achi- it achieved the opposite of what it was trying to achieve. Instead of making me want to pump my fist in the air with pride and happiness that the two of them had come out and gotten together, it seemed it seemed incredibly staged. A part of me resists the glossiness and the, the feel-good ben- benignity. Ben- is that a word? The benign <laughs> nature of this movie, that it seems so allergic to having anything even slightly prickly in it. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I found interesting, because I've also read the book that this is based on, and in the book, that scene doesn't happen. I found it quite interesting that they made that choice to kind of very consciously fall into these rom-com tropes. And I felt like it, it, to an extent, it's kind of a commentary on how teenagers sort of shape their lives around what they're seeing on screen and the fact that Simon hasn't had a a film that could provide that kind of template for his own life and so he hasn't felt able to talk about his own sexuality and act on his sexuality until this moment. It was interesting that this was kind of giving gay teenagers their own script for how to navigate that in the absurd kind of confines of this genre. I guess, yeah, I guess the question would be how do you feel about being served up you know, a, a classic, corny, glossy, mainstream rom-com, just like mall ready, right? This is yeah. like multiplex ready. And uh, and if you think of that as an important achievement, a kind of representational milestone, then this movie does jump, just jump through that hoop. But to me, it felt like a dutiful hoop jumping. Dana, gay teens deserve an incredibly basic teen movie of their own. <laughs> it, is, it is so basic. It's I think extremely basic. Uh, uh, yeah, it is. A, yeah. I mean, it's like if you watch any of those Nicholas Sparks movies, I think this that makes this look like Casablanca by comparison. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Just yeah. because like there it, there does seem to be a sincere, actual desire on everyone parts part working on the movie to tell this story in a way that in some of those sort of extremely basic teen rom-coms, it just sort of feels like they're just watching their bank account balance grow. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. not cynical in the least. And I do yeah. appreciate that about this movie. Everybody seems to be cheerfully and enthusiastically participating in it. And there are, there are many scenes, including the one that we heard with the dad, that is, as hokey as they are somehow work. But it's more, I mean, and I've seen this in a few reviews of the movie, too, that this is a very conflict-free world that Simon lives in, right? Which I guess is part of the basicness. Rom-coms always tend to take place in this Nancy Myers-like upper-middle-class affluent bubble. But this movie is very much that, right? I mean, Simon inhabits this Atlanta suburb it's very posh. He gets his a new car as a present at the very beginning of the movie. I mean, I'm not going right, to... Well, he's saying, I'm just like you to the audience. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, 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 we wish. Well, I, I, I will say that, you know, the thing the thing that bugged me about this movie is the, just uh, actually, is the sort of pervasive 
uh, blandness of all of the teenage characters in it that um, there is, uh, you know, it's very purposeful and pointed. The first line of the movie is what, like, I'm like you or I'm just a normal guy or whatever. Yeah. There's literally a shot of him putting on his pants one leg at a time <laughs> during the opening voiceover about how normal he is. And, um, you know, like they have no traits. There's like nothing about them, really. And while the movie is sort of drawing, I think, very clearly on the John Hughes tradition uh, from of, of 80s, you know, teen movies, if you look at those movies again, and I'm actually not even a huge fan of those movies, every character in a John Hughes movie is like very clearly delineated. They have something weird about them that makes them a misfit. They're, they're complicated and interesting, even if they only have a few lines. And so the weird thing that happens over the course of the watching the movie is the only thing that makes these kids particular and individuated is their pain. One of them has a divorce that they're that their parents have gone through and she's upset about it. You know, Simon is in the closet. There's another character who has there's two characters who are struggling with unrequited love, you know, and and so that aspect of it started to really bug me. That was the thing that bugged me as the film went on was that sort of pervasive blandness. And then you have all of the adults who are played by like Tony Hale and uh, Natasha Rothwell from um insecure as the drama teacher who's amazing and they come in with this sort of full force of personality that it's like you're just felt like a breath of fresh air every time they walked on screen yeah and that seems important to the question of queer representation too right that the characters should have should have some some qualities they should not just be <laughs> the man without qualities who's just like us and i'm not saying that simon needs to be effeminate or queeny or in any way kind of an exaggerated figure of gayness but he's he's so straight appearing or almost sort of non-sexual and non-threatening in his presentation that it, it's it's hard to feel the desire that this movie is supposed to be driven by. Yeah, I mean, one thing I would say, I don't want to give them too much credit for this because I don't know how deliberate it was, but I think there's an extent to which there's an in-universe explanation for Simon's blindness, which is that he's really kind of scared of his own sexuality and hasn't, it, he doesn't really know who he is or what he wants yet because he has been kind of too scared to think about it for long enough to find out. He just doesn't want to engage with that part of himself. So he's trying really hard to cultivate this appearance of I'm just like you and uh, sort of being straight passing and making himself as uh, unnoticeable as possible. Like when he goes to this Halloween party with his best friend Leah, they're in a couple's costume and it's like this effort to appear as straight as possible feels like kind of a defense mechanism to an extent. And he just hasn't had the ability to explore his own personality yet and get to figure out this is who I am and what I like and who I want to be. And, right, and um, he doesn't even have a great idea of what a, what a version of himself that fits in gay culture would be like, right? Mm -hmm. There's that very funny um, dream sequence in the middle of the movie where he thinks about <laughs> Uh, you know, what he'd always planned to just sort of let high school slide by and then come out once he got to college. And there's that sequence of uh, him and a bunch of people at Liberal <laughs> University <laughs> in the background say, dancing around to Whitney Houston's, uh, I want to dance with somebody who loves me, all wearing beautiful primary colors. Like that's, like, that's the very simplified, almost like Lego version of gay life that he can imagine because I think, as Alex says, he hasn't had the courage or he's been too scared to imagine himself into gay life in any real way. He doesn't have any sense of how he might fit in what to him is still a kind of alien world. 
right. then and then after he comes out, of course, he has to Google how do gay people dress. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> uh, which, which was, I mean, no, no, all that actual aspect of his character I loved. It is more that it just sort of spreads to everyone, to that to that central uh, quartet of friends, et cetera, that, that I found kind of weird and um, uh, uh, worrisome. Yeah, and that, I think that... Uh, Nick likes soccer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, liking soccer... <laughs> <laughs> I don't even have a response to that. I didn't mind that Simon has this sort of performative normality, yeah, right? right. It, it is more that it just seemed like everyone in this oh, high yeah. school, yeah, like yeah, yeah. very few of the, the the two characters who have personalities are the villain of the movie, mm. and yeah. Martin and um, the uh, fabulous out black gay character of Ethan. Uh, those two uh, uh, kids get personalities and everyone else is, you know, as, as Dan put it, one of them likes soccer. Yeah, and that happens on the level of race as well. And this quartet of friends that go out for coffee every morning before school, two of them are black, two of them are white. There's just there's there's this kind of I mean, it just it, it reminds me of those sitcoms that imagine those affluent worlds where there's no such thing as, you know, racial polarization or kind of tension that, that, that there's just this happy, diverse, bland universe. All right. I'm going to leave you, Alex, with the last word. Would you send gay teens or any teens, high school students of your acquaintance to see Love, Simon? Yes, I would. I think. I think something that's important is when Martin has this uh, sort of attempted apology after there's quite a homophobic incident in the school after he outs Simon. And then he says, oh, I didn't realize kids still did shit like that as his apology. And Simon's like, well, actually, they do. (laughs) And I, I think there has been a degree to which people are like, oh, today's teenagers don't really need this film. But tolerance in America is actually decreasing for the first time in years in the current climate. And we're still at a point where like one in three adults said that they would be uncomfortable if their family member turned out to be LGBTQ. So I feel like if this slightly bland film can reach some of those audiences and change some of those minds or just help the parents and the kids to understand themselves and each other better than it will have absolutely been worth it. And also it's quite a nice film so yeah i enjoyed it a lot and i suspect a lot of other people will too yeah it's sweet it's bouncy it's full of energy and good performances i send you forth with my blessing go see love simon thanks so much alex no thank you and come talk about it on our facebook page if you care to at facebook.com slash culture fest and we've done it we've gotten to the moment in the show where we endorse daniel coyce what have you got Uh, i would like to endorse the greatest superhero movie ever made Prince's pay-per-view special from 1988, shot during the Love Sexy Tour, which has somehow ended up on YouTube. It is an hour and a half long concert of Prince in his prime, um, playing every song you ever wanted him to play uh, with an incredible band and booty-shaking dancers and incredible dance moves and epic guitar solos and a basketball hoop that's on stage for some reason. I don't know why. Is it called um, Love Sexy If you if you search for the actual title? Uh, we will post it on our Facebook page, uh, but it is a, it, you can just look for Prince 1988 Love Sexy Special and it will probably come up. Um, it is totally worth watching from beginning to end uh, if you would just like to spend a little time one day in awe of like the greatest entertainer any of us will ever see in our lifetimes. Uh, his hair is spectacular in this video. Um, his outfits are outrageous and then there's this one stretch toward the end where the song order, I shit you not, is Let's Go Crazy, When Doves Cry, Purple Rain, 1999, Alphabet Street. That's like, it's absurd. 
it's great. It's it's like an hour and a half of perfection. I can't recommend it enough. This is exactly one of those things when right after Prince's death, it was impossible to find anything right. on YouTube, right? And and uh, you had to, I don't know, bootleg something from Russia in order to see a concert performance. But that stuff is starting to become available now? Right. Well, it's be, it's becoming available the same rate it always was, but it's getting taken down much more slowly than it used to. Right, because Prince doesn't have his people on it, maybe with the same ferocity as before. I always imagined it was Prince himself coasting <laughs> through YouTube with indefatigable energy, sending off cease and desists. Uh, with like his little glyph at the bottom. <laughs> That's a great one, Dan. I'm definitely going to watch that. All right, Isaac, what have you got? On uh, March 23rd, the great uh, British mystery novelist Philip Kerr uh, passed away at the age of uh, 62. And um, that got me thinking about this trilogy of novels he wrote, which can be bought in one single volume called the Berlin Noir Trilogy. And uh, since I was on the GabFest last time talking about Babylon Berlin, and since this is also a trilogy of detective stories set in the Weimar Republic and then eventually during World War II in Germany... I thought it would make a, a great fit. The Berlin Noir trilogy is one of the great works of uh, historical detective fiction. It follows a um, social Democrat ex-police officer named Bernie Gunther as he tries to solve missing persons cases. And because it's in the you know early days of the, I guess the first book takes place right after the Reichstag fire, actually. So it's in the early days of the Nazi regime. The missing persons cases are often local Jews. And um, it is, uh, all three of them are just absolutely brilliant. They're great mysteries. They're really entertainingly written. They engage with the darkness of that era in a serious way and their use of research is really profound they're just beautiful books he uh left that character for a long time and then picked him back up towards the end of his life and those books are not there's diminishing returns there but that initial trilogy is there's those are three of my favorite mystery novels i've ever read oh that's great that's a very metcalfian endorsement i hope he listens oh no he never listens to the show maybe when he's not on it he'll listen yeah exactly but that's that that kind of noir sounds right up his alley all right those are so good i have to up my endorsement game here to keep up with you guys um all right so yeah, few, what do you got well a few weeks ago i believe on this show i endorsed filmstruck subscribing to filmstruck yep. the the great streaming service that just joined up with criterion and joined up with warner archive and it basically is is the place to go now for kind of repertory cinema in your house so i hope all of you listen to me and subscribe to filmstruck because now i have a specific offering on filmstruck to endorse which is that they're doing this package this this month i believe it lasts for at least a month i think they tend to do their turnovers about every four weeks they're doing this package of films by and one film about Apichat Pong Wirasethakul, perhaps the funnest name to say I've ever gotten to say in an endorsement, who is the great uh, Thai filmmaker who made the movie that he's most known for in the U.S. probably is called Uncle Boon Me, who can recall his past lives. He's impossible to describe, but experimental, avant-garde, but also his movies are really emotional and, and relatable and beautiful. So Filmstruck is currently streaming five of his movies, plus a documentary about him, the movies have such beautiful titles that I have to read them all. I've only seen two of these. Uncle Boon Me, Who Can Recall His Past Lives, which I mentioned. Mysterious Object at Noon. Who would not want to see a movie with that title? Tropical Malady. Syndromes in a Century, which was, his, I believe, his first movie, at least the first one that made it to the U.S. And his most recent, Cemetery of Splendor. They're also showing a documentary about him. So I just feel so lucky that Filmstruck is out there and giving a place for unusual movies like this that otherwise you would just have to, to wait and wait till they come for one week to your local repertory house. So Apichat Pong, we're set the cool on Filmstruck. All right, Dan and Isaac, thank you so much for joining us on the show this week. It was a pure delight. Thank you, Dana. Thanks. 
You'll find links to some of the things we talked about on our show page at slate.com slash culturefest, or you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note on Facebook at facebook.com slash culturefest. Our Twitter feed is at slatecultfest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Daniel Schrader. And the executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtai. For Isaac Butler and Dan Coyce, I'm Dana Stevens. We will see you next week.